you know, you know, DNA, uh, when, when it was first, uh, becoming widely used, uh, it, it, different techniques were being used back then, different analysis. Uh, I don't think anybody was dreaming about where, I mean, certainly scientists probably were, but law enforcement detectives, we, we never were dreaming where it would ultimately lead to today with genealogy and everything else, the way we're doing this. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. It's been a little while since we've done a forensic science episode, but no longer. Today, we're talking with Tom McAndrew. Now, Tom is a retired homicide detective with the Pennsylvania State Police, and he's also a super interesting guy. So we're going to talk about how he got into law enforcement and then how he got involved in cold case investigations. We'll talk about investigative genetic genealogy, and then he has a few examples of how he's used these techniques in actual real cold cases. All right, here's Tom McAndrew. Uh, now, I know you have degrees in criminal justice and investigative forensics, right. and I'm curious how you got interested in these fields in the beginning. In the beginning, uh, I, actually, I grew up, uh, my dad was a uh, member of the Pennsylvania State Police, so uh, that that's oh, sort okay. of... That's what drove my interest. Um, he was when, when I was uh, young, very young. Uh, he was involved in some uh, high profile murder cases in our area. And uh, it, it piqued my curiosity. Uh, by the time I was 20, I was pursuing a law enforcement career. Uh, I had left college at that point, uh, eventually went back, uh, obviously, as you, as you just alluded to. But I had pursued a law enforcement career. Uh, I wanted to get into the Pennsylvania State Police, but I was too young. Uh, but I was able to be a municipal police officer in Pennsylvania. Uh, so by the time I was twenty, I was a uh, I was a police officer. Oh wow! Okay, so that was I mean, basically just your your father's influence on you. Then you just kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps. Correct, and and, and I knew specifically uh, that I wanted to uh, pursue uh, investigations. I, I wanted to be a detective. So, uh, you know, that that is eventually where I pursued that type of education. I pursued that career path within law enforcement. Uh, certainly everybody starts out in uniform, but uh, I, I wanted to pursue the investigative, uh, you know, avenues uh, that law enforcement offered. At what point then did you decide to go? Because you said you left college to uh, become a police officer. At what point did you decide then to go back? Uh, actually, when I was uh, a municipal police officer, I, I went back. I would, uh, you know, criminal justice, as big as it is now uh, in in colleges, it wasn't as big back then. Uh, we're talking, you know, late 80s, uh, in 1989. Uh, there was a pretty advanced police science program at a community college in the Harrisburg area in Pennsylvania. I would leave working midnight shifts and I would drive to Harrisburg uh, to take, you know, part time classes uh, to try to, uh, to to finish my degree. And so throughout my police career, I, I continually went back, whether it was uh, after working, you know, late shifts, I would take daytime classes or else after working day shifts, I would take night classes and uh, all the way through to eventually getting my master's degree. Wow, that that seems like a lot of work. Like, how many years did that take? <laughs> uh, funny, I don't mean to laugh, but it took a long time. <laughs> it probably took uh, close to twenty years to do it. 
through to get my master's. Okay. And the master's is in investigative forensics. Correct. Now, you said a little while ago that you had always wanted to be a detective and you became a homicide detective. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, how did you get into that role and kind of what was that role like? Well, the, the, the Pennsylvania State Police is, uh, you know, obviously a very large uh, or organization. Uh, it, it was going through at the time period that I came onto the Pennsylvania State Police, it was going through uh, a huge turnover in personnel. Um, there were there were mass retirements. And because of mass retirements, there were mass hirings. And the department was going from a very older, traditional department to now the department was, uh, you know, everybody very young, just starting out in their careers. And there were a lot of opportunities. I had now, now that, I, now that I'm in the, at the Pennsylvania State Police at that point, uh, when I'm around 23 years old, uh, I, you know, certainly I had some police experience because I had been a, a local police officer. Uh, so I made it known, you know, of my interest in criminal investigation and being a detective. And uh, while there wasn't an opportunity to be a detective at that point, but there was to be in our crime scene unit to go out and process crime scenes, collect evidence. And so I, I received a lot of encouragement. Uh, you know, certainly I was a very young trooper, uh, you know, somebody with a, only a, a few years on today might not have those same opportunities, but back then you did. And uh, so I, I pursued that uh, because that was a, a vacancy and uh, I started processing crime scenes and the state police cover a large territory. So I processed crime scenes, uh, everything from, you know, a burglary to a murder in uh, four different counties in northeastern Pennsylvania. When I eventually had the opportunity to transition into uh, being a detective, I did that. And then, again, I had some some breaks early in my career uh, because I had a crime scene background. They would use me throughout the troop on different homicide cases. And that developed into me pursuing that that avenue that I, I really enjoyed working of violent crime and homicide cases. And uh, the Pennsylvania State Police has a specialized unit called the CIA unit, which is the Criminal Investigation Assessment Unit. They basically are the homicide unit of the Pennsylvania State Police. Uh, they're behaviorally based. They work hot and cold homicides. And when I was able to get into that position, I never left it. Uh, I was in there for about 18 years as a uh, full-time investigator. You know, you said you started uh, doing investigations when you were 23 years old. I'm trying to think when I was 23, like what, what I was doing. And it was it was nothing near uh, that kind of responsibility, that kind of importance. So that's, that's uh, impressive at, at that young of an age. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I had, uh, I had some, uh, some opportunities. I, I, you know, throughout my career when it was time to choose uh, other uh, people for certain positions and whether I had any, uh, you know, a role in that uh, maybe being on like an interview board or anything like that. Uh, I, I always was the, the person that had no problem choosing somebody that, w- that was young, as long as they were driven to do it. I, 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 d- I think you can teach anybody how to do a certain job, but you can't teach them uh, to have common, you know, to, to have common sense for that role. You can't teach them to have drive or determination or, as I say, heart. You can't teach them, you know, to. And I think if you're passionate about something, you know, you, you, you can be you can certainly do great in that role. All, all the, the basics of it, all the book stuff, you, you can be taught that. But uh, again, you need that passion to do that job. 
And, uh, and I, I was just very interested in it at that point. Yeah, that's true. Like uh, pretty much everybody I've ever had on this podcast, uh, the reason that they're doing what they're doing, no matter what, uh, you know, sort of field or subfield it is, it, it is that passion. It is that drive and just that, uh, like the interest and, in, you know, to be constantly learning new things about what they're doing and constantly improving. I think that's exactly what you were just talking about. You mentioned a little while ago uh, the Criminal Investigation Assessment Unit, and I want to kind of get into that a little bit more. Can you tell me a little more about that unit and what it does? Uh, that unit, actually the foundation of that unit, and, and I, I you know, certainly give uh, a tremendous amount of credit to the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, always trying to be uh, forward thinking. Uh, it, it was basically a spinoff of the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI. Uh, early in the, in the founding of that unit, we, they had the Pennsylvania state police, uh, and, and you're talking probably the early 1980s had sent the, the, the FBI offered a program where they would assist, uh, agencies by training people in behavior analysis. And the Pennsylvania state police took advantage of that and had a, a trooper by the name of Tom Brennan, uh, who basically was, uh, went through that training program, and he was going to be the one main person with that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of background and that kind of training and experience and education. Uh, so he, he got trained in that uh, basically to look at, you know, crime scenes and look at crime scene photos and look at cold cases and try to offer investigative avenues for them. And then uh, it's it, it sort of, uh, you know, it spiraled from there. Uh, to the point that they would have a part-time trooper in every troop. Uh, the, the state of Pennsylvania has uh, a number, you know, troops that cover the entire state, so they would have it on a part-time basis. And now, as you go into the 1990s, they saw the need for it to be full-time because there were, you know, it, it was being successful. It was having an influence on unsolved homicides and and new homicides that were being handled by the Pennsylvania State Police. We wanted to be able to assist local agencies with that kind of uh, education and training. And uh, now it's a full-time unit. It has been a full-time unit probably from the mid to late 90s. And it's very successful. Uh, Most of the cold cases in Pennsylvania that the Pennsylvania State Police uh, have resolved were had some influence or some uh, investigative uh, assistance by the CIA unit. Are, are you still involved with this unit? I mean, even like in sort of a training role? I, I am actually, believe it or not. Uh, I, I just uh, spoke at uh, some different training sessions that were held at the Pennsylvania State Police Academy. Uh, I, I still routinely speak to uh, members of that unit uh, who I'm you know, close with, that I'm friends with, that I worked with. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see it, you know, currently it continues to thrive uh, and do good, great work. Now, you mentioned that th- this unit is particularly involved with cold cases. And I know this is something that has been kind of a major interest for you as well. Uh, I want to talk about uh, uh, something called forensic genetic genealogy, because this is uh, an area or a, I guess a, a field that you've been using in, in cold cases. Can can you kind of explain what forensic genetic genealogy is? Yeah, I, I, th- there's there's a couple different uh, trains of thought. For, first of all, uh, some people do attach the forensic to it. Uh, others do not. Other, others refer to it as investigative genetic genealogy. But it is the same, basically the same thing. 
you basically, from a, uh, a DNA profile, whether it's uh, DNA that was left behind at a crime scene or whether it's an unidentified decedent, you basically, uh, it gets analyzed to the point that it can be uploaded into genealogy databases. There are only two genealogy databases out there that cooperate with law enforcement. One is Family Tree DNA and one is GEDmatch. And uh, once those profiles are uploaded into there, somebody that is trained in doing uh, this type of investigation or this type of type of uh, you know genealogy research, they are able to then basically uh, develop a family tree as to uh, who the relatives of that uh, that DNA source would be, and then from there it uh, provides an investigative lead uh, to any detective working those cases. Okay, that, that that's interesting. That sounds like there's a lot of. Um it seems like there'd be a sort of a lot of dead ends and like sort of, you know, there, is, there is a lead, but it kind of leads to nothing sometimes. Does that get frustrating at times? Oh, of course, of course it's frustrating, but uh, you know, investigative genetic genealogy has now provided cold cases and unidentified decedent cases, uh, a chance that they never had. Uh, I mean, throughout the majority of my career, uh, we never even dreamed of it. Uh, and, and I retired from the Pennsylvania State Police in 2018, and that is really when uh, genetic genealogy uh, for investigations was blowing up. Uh, the, the, the Golden State Killer case is really what blew the lid off of law enforcement using it. That was probably, in a, if I had to guess, maybe around April of 2018. Uh, be- before that, law enforcement was using it in pockets. I mean, there were uh, forward-thinking detectives that that knew we were onto something, and we could probably use these ancestry databases to, to try to help our investigations. Uh, in, in other words, those profiles were in CODIS, which is the National DNA Database System, and they weren't hitting. Uh, so we knew that we probably could take that and and link it somehow. Uh, so detectives were using it in certain pockets across the country. But once uh, the Golden State Killer case happened in California and that got solved, I think every detective that's affiliated with cold cases heard that, read that, saw that on the nightly news and thought, I'm going to do that for my case. And I think that's where we're at right now, where it's so widely used in in these investigations. And, you know, you're hard pressed to not find, uh, you know, every few days a story where, Somebody that was unidentified for 30 or 40 years has now been identified because of this technique or a a crime scene sample that was in CODIS uh, for 20 years. I mean, I'll give you an example. The company I now work for, Innovative Forensic Investigations out of Virginia, uh, we helped on a serial rape case in the state of New Jersey that the the offender had broken into uh, homes and had sexually assaulted young girls. And that went unsolved uh, for, for over 20 years. His DNA profile was in the national database for over 20 years. But once we had uh, gotten involved in the investigation, we were able to point law enforcement in the direction of who their suspect is. And uh, it's just it's amazing. I mean, I, I really wish, you know, throughout my career, uh, my career of working cold cases, I wish it was available that entire time. But uh, it's available now, and uh, it's just a matter of, of doing it. Uh, you know, certainly there's expenses involved in it. There's no state crime laboratory that I'm aware of that develops the profile to 
do this type of uh, investigation. So then that means you have to send it out privately. So again, there's costs involved. And, and again, it's a matter of, uh, of doing it. It's a matter of finding enough, uh, you know, investigators that have the time to do it, to dig out those samples, to get them sent out, uh, to get them to qualified uh, genealogists that know what to do and, and get that lead developed. So there's, there's a lot to it. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, you mentioned uh, Innovative Forensic Investigations a little while ago. It's the company that you work for now. Now, are you is this like something nationwide that you're, you're consulting on cases from other states as well? Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, as I just mentioned, you know, that 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 case we helped uh, with was in New Jersey. Uh, yeah. The uh, we, we consult and assist agencies all across the country. Keeping with uh, kind of with cold cases, I mean, you served on the National Institute of Justice cold case working group. Yes. Uh, all right. So how'd you get involved with this group? And, and then I kind of want to get into uh, what what the group did. Uh, I, I, I uh, had been affiliated with and worked with some of the people from the National Institute of Justice uh, who were putting that team together. So uh, I think they assembled roughly 35 subject matter experts uh, from different backgrounds. It wasn't just uh, law enforcement. It was uh, forensic experts. It was uh, prosecutors. It was uh, everybody that could possibly uh, offer input into the cold case dilemma that this nation is faced with. And we had that working group together probably for about three years to try to put together a uh, a publication uh, that the National Institute of Justice uh, produced uh, to sort of help uh, law enforcement agencies on how they can sustain their cold case units. We started noticing uh, that uh, within law enforcement, because law enforcement is pulled in so many different directions, we started noticing that sometimes the cold case units are the first units to get cut, whether it's their funding or their manpower. Cold cases uh, take a long time to, to get resolved. If there's not somebody doing it or somebody dedicated to doing it, uh, it's likely not going to happen. You know, I always say somebody has to care about those cases and, you know, somebody always has to be pushing those four cases forward. Uh, but unfortunately, we, we find that a lot of uh, law enforcement executives in the United States uh, wind up cutting those units or not fully uh, equipping those units with manpower or money. And, uh, you know, you know it, it leads to a continued uh, accumulation of cold cases. Okay, you mentioned the uh, the publication that this uh, working group came out with. It was this sort of like a guideline for not only how to sort of uh, run these uh, cold case units, but to make sure that they're properly funded. Was that part of it too? It was, yes, sir. Okay, like what kind of time frame or what, like what sort of year was this that we're talking about when when you were doing this? Uh, probably two thousand fifteen to two thousand eighteen. Oh, okay, so not too long ago. Um, have you seen since that time, I mean, I know it's only been a few years, but have you seen like any sort of improvement with the way the cold case units are run and funded based on this publication? I I think so. And and simply because I think it helps us make noise about this, the, uh, the magnitude of the, of this situation, you know, by, by most estimates since 1980, there's over 280,000 unsolved homicides in the United States. I mean, that, that that's pretty staggering. Uh, yeah. You know, wow. you, you know, there's so many levels involved. Uh, 
political issues and funding issues and government money. And, uh, but, but 280,000 unsolved homicides is, is pretty, uh, if that doesn't make an impact to a, a politician and the public to uh, make this the priority, it should be. I, I don't know what will, but often these, these stories just, they, they don't get, they don't get pushed. And, uh, you know, they, they might pick up steam and then they'll fizzle out. It's just, it's just the reality of it. It it really is the reality of it. Yeah, that's, that's a shame. That's a sad reality, really. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Tomic Andrew. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I got to tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh yeah, and while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Tomic Andrew on the People of Pathology podcast. You started an initiative in Pennsylvania to locate unidentified decedents in efforts to apply contemporary investigative standards to them. And I'm curious about this, and I think you probably touched on some of this already in uh, a little bit earlier, but t- tell me about this effort, and and, and then let's talk about if it, if you think it's been successful. Well, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, um, as I said, you know, when I, when I was working for the Pennsylvania State Police, I was assigned to a number of cases with unidentified decedents, and as I was. Luckily, I was on this National Institute of Justice working group at the time. Uh, I was trying to get I knew these cases could not be brought up to contemporary standards if the victims were not exhumed back in the in the day when they were recovered, whether it was the 70s or the 80s or even some of them in the 60s. The proper samples were not collected by law enforcement. Again, not we, we never dreamed of where DNA would take us. We never dreamed of where investigative right. genetic genealogy would take us. So they did not take the proper samples. Often the, they would just uh, put these decedents into unmarked graves, and that would be the end of it. So I was assigned to these cases. I was looking for funding sources because, again, if uh, government agencies, whether it's a district attorney's office or whether it's a police agency, if they don't have the money budgeted, they really don't have anywhere to turn for for some of this funding. Uh, You know, current homicides take a lot of the money, uh, current initiatives, whether it's anything from body cams to needing new uh, firearms to, you know, there's so many different directions that law enforcement money goes. All right. So if you don't have the money budgeted for for some of these things, you really can't find it. So because I was on this NIJ uh, project in talking to other people on the on the panel, they were faced with the same situation. But some we we at that point did have some access to grant money. 
that was through NIJ and through BJA. And we were able to apply some of that grant money into doing exhumations in Pennsylvania. So as I went to the cemetery to prepare for these exhumations, and I was doing my research on where these graves would be that we needed to dig up, because again, they're unmarked. The caretaker at the cemetery pulled out a drawer, a card catalog drawer, and he started looking for my decedent. And he's like, oh, it's not this John Doe. It's not this Jane Doe. It's not this one. And I'm like, well, what are they? And he's like, oh, well, they're all the other unidentified decedents buried up here. And I'm like, well, I can pretty much assure you in that part of of Pennsylvania, if the state police were not working on it and didn't know about it, I would venture to say not a lot of other people were working on it or were aware of it. Uh, so I was like, this is like a mess. <laughs> so basically, you know, what I, what I was left to see that th- there were so many. Uh, and I thought if that's the problem in this one county in northeastern Pennsylvania, it's got to be the same thing all over Pennsylvania. So th- there's actually a national database called NamUs that unidentified decedents. And, and I'll give the government credit on this. Uh, it, it's a great program. It's a, it's, it, it's been very successful. And, uh, you know, I researched that and I, I wanted to see what the numbers were for Pennsylvania, how many unidentified decedents were entered into that database. And I saw that there were only about 100 at that time. And again, if I knew that all these unidentifieds were up in this one county, not not in that system, I knew it had to be a mess across the state. So I actually went to a friend of mine who was very influential and he was like the head of the Coroners Association of Pennsylvania, Scott Grimm. And Scott and I actually authored a letter to all of the coroner's offices, sort of prompting them to do an accounting within their own counties to, to see uh, what, what they had. And we, we gradually started noticing that, you know, cases were getting populated into that, na- that NamUs system. So then we knew that the, the biggest thing to tackle would be Philadelphia. And we were very fortunate because Philadelphia has some great uh, investigators in the medical examiner's office that were very interested in this as well. And they started going through their records as well. And they started finding hundreds of unidentified decedents. Uh, Most of them had been buried in a potter's field and unmarked graves. So we had some of that grant money left and we offered it to those Philadelphia cases where we went down there to try to further some of those cases. Uh, certainly, we we know we can never do hundreds that are that are in a in a cemetery. Uh, it's just too much of a, a major, a large scale project uh, that we didn't have the funding for or the manpower. Uh, but we knew if we could do some of them, starting with the youngest victims, the children, the known homicide victims, we thought we could bring some attention to it, and and we did. And uh, you know, Philadelphia has a great handle on how many unidentifieds are are down there right now. Uh, but but again. We're at the point now, this was prior to 2018 when we were doing these things. And if you look at what genealogy has opened the doors for now in 2018, a lot of these unidentified decedents can be identified. It's a, just finding the money and the funding to do it. Well, wow, that, that's amazing. Like, so, I mean, do you have an idea of like what is sort of the, I don't want to say the oldest case, but like the longest time frame between kind of the time of the, the death, I guess, and when you've made an uh, identification? Well, just by the mere fact of us being at the cemetery for the one for one of them up in Luzerne County, we noticed uh, a gentleman standing watching us on the outside of the police tape. And uh, my partner uh, from the state police, Sean Williams, he actually went up to the individual 
and uh, just inquired, you know, what, why are you here? What, what's your interest? He said, well, I saw this in the newspaper that you guys were doing this, and I have not seen my aunt from the early 1970s. And so we explained to him, you know, what we could do now with DNA, and we got a, a sample from him, and uh, at the very least, uh-huh. we wanted to get his sample into the national database. That's the way it works, where you take family samples, and they match up with unidentified decedents. And when we did it, uh, it, it hit on one of the, the victims that we were actually digging up at that cemetery. So that was from the early 1970s. Uh, a story that's huge in the news right now uh, is a Philadelphia case. Uh, you know, I, it's not one of the ones I was involved with, but the boy in the box case was just identified. And that's from the 1950s. He, he was a, a boy that was murdered, uh, beaten to death, four or five years old. And uh, he was just identified. And I think he was dumped in 57. Uh, so, uh, you know, the technology, again, the technology is there. We can do these things now. It's just a matter of getting people interested in it, keeping the momentum going, getting political support, getting public support, getting funding, uh, finding the manpower to do it. All of these people in these unmarked graves, we can, we can do it right now. And, and again, keep in mind, Dennis, uh, many of them are homicide victims, you know, many of them are right. children. So it, it's, it's a shame that that's this, the, especially for, you know, the United States, uh, a lot of these things shouldn't be the way they are. Yeah, that's definitely true. Do you feel like, I mean, some of these cases kind of get media exposure, it sounds like. Do you feel like that is helpful in, in kind of gaining momentum? It, it is. Media exposure is very, very helpful. But we live in a day and age where our society is so inundated with information, whether it's social media or whether it's podcasts or whether it's TV or whether it's print uh, that we find that these stories, even when we have a success, like I was telling you, where we help on a, uh, you know, a, a 20 or 30 year old case and we bring it to uh, a successful conclusion, it's in the media for a couple of days and then it dies out. It might get uh, brought up again yeah. if there's an arrest. It might get brought up again if there's a trial or a verdict. But there's only those couple little you only have that little snapshot where anybody really pays attention to it. And then it gradually goes away. Yeah, you're right about that. That's a, that's a shame. Uh, can you tell me about the Vidoc, Vidoc Society? Am I saying that yeah, right? Yeah, the Vidoc Society. Uh, Vidoc okay. Society, uh, they were actually very instrumental in the boy in the box case that I just spoke of. Okay. The, the Vidoc Society, uh, I am on the board of directors there. It's a tremendous organization. It was put together by uh, by three individuals, uh, I believe, in 1990. It is basically a group of uh, forensic and homicide experts who uh, dedicate their time uh, pro bono to these cases uh, nine times a year. We will have a we, we have a luncheon once a month, uh, nine times a year. And we, uh, a law enforcement agency can come to us with total confidentiality. Uh, they will present their case to us and we will uh, offer our input. We, certainly, we're not going to solve it over the course of a one hour lunch, but we do have a, a smaller group of members who keep analyzing that case, uh, sort of to try to, uh, to just just to give the, the agency um some direction uh, with that case, something they might not have thought of. And, and it, it provides them an opportunity to get some of the leading investigative and forensic minds uh, and prosecutorial minds on their case. 
that they might not otherwise be able to afford. Uh, sometimes when you'll consult with a forensic expert, if the clock starts ticking, it, you know, it, it could cost thousands of dollars uh, just to consult with a forensic expert. So oh. it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a, a very successful uh, organization, uh, you know, very lo- low profile. Our interest is only in solving the case. You know, we, we only will take on a case from law enforcement. We will only work in conjunction with law enforcement. Uh, you know, we're not a private investigative agency or anything like that, but uh, very, very successful. Okay, I see. And how long have you been a, a part of the Vidoc Society? Uh, I would, if I would have to guess, 15 years. How, how did you get involved in, initially? Uh, it's not the type of organization where you can just join or, uh, call them up and say, Hey, Uh I want to be a member. Uh, you actually have to be asked to be a member. Uh, so similar to the NIJ project, I had been affiliated with some individuals had worked with individuals that were part of that organization. And then they extended the invitation uh, for me to join. All right. Now, so I was told to ask you about the Beth Doe case. (laughs) Uh, can, can, can you tell me about this case? Uh, the, the Beth Doe case is is a great example of how uh, you know investigative genetic genealogy can solve cases that probably would not have been solved otherwise. the The Beth Doe case was a dismembered pregnant female who was she was shot and strangled. She was put into three separate suitcases. The suitcases had the handles cut off them. Uh, the suitcases were partially spray painted and they were dumped off of a bridge that spanned the Lehigh River in uh, Carbon County. Uh, this happened in 1976. Uh, Interstate 80 runs uh, you know, across the, the, the country, basically from New York to California. Interstate 80 runs right through Pennsylvania. Somebody on the what would have been the westbound lanes tossed those suitcases off of a bridge and thinking probably thinking that they would have went into um, the river below. But instead, they landed up on the banks where they were found by a uh, a young boy uh, right around Christmas time of 1976. So she was nine months pregnant, uh, you know, a healthy full term uh, fetus. There were, there were certainly a number of uh, investigative leads that you thought would have led to her uh, identification, but the case went cold. The, the, the biggest hurdle in a case certainly is identifying the victim, which is just like we were talking about the unidentified problem. If they're a homicide victim, you can't really be working that homicide case without knowing who your victim is. Uh, it, it's, it's almost impossible to do. So with the Beth Doe case, we knew our biggest hurdle was to identify her. So years went by and it passed through, you know, trooper after trooper and investigator and, and uh, you know, National Center for, Center for Missing and Exploited Children helped us with that case because she was estimated to be a young uh, teen girl and um, always dead ends. So around 2007, my partner uh, that I spoke of earlier, he and I decided, again, the only way we're ever going to do anything with this case would be to exhume her and get the samples that we need. So we did that. Uh, we located her grave, which was down in Carbon County on a county property. Uh, and we had uh, full support from the district attorney's office and the coroner's office in Carbon County. And we exhumed her. And uh, we got uh, the appropriate samples 
that, that we would have needed at that time. Uh, again, keep in mind, you got to keep in mind timeframes. 2007, uh, genealogy is not even being thought of at that point. Uh, but the national database, uh, we, we submitted the samples to them, we tried to do everything forensically we could. And uh, we, we just kept that case going and, and tried to get, you know, like I said, somebody has to be interested in a case in order to keep it pushing forward. So long story short, I retire in 2018 and genealogy is now on the scene. And long story short, it ultimately, the samples that we obtained back in 2007 were used to identify her as a girl named Evelyn Cologne uh, from New Jersey. It, it led to the arrest of a former boyfriend, actually the father of that child, uh, who was actually pending trial right now uh, for having murdered her. Uh, but, but, but again, without, uh, without genealogy coming uh, to where it is now, uh, I'll venture to say that that case probably wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been solved. So that's, that's basically the Beth Doe case in a nutshell. She was named Beth Doe uh, because, you know, you're, you're so accustomed to hearing Jane Doe. The pathologist that did the autopsy on her initially was a very well-known pathologist out of the city of Philadelphia named Dr. Albert Fillinger. And he took her remains down into Philadelphia and stored them down there for a few years before she was buried in Carbon County. And simply because Philadelphia had already had a Jane Doe in their facility, they had to now resort to a different name. So that's where she wound up with Beth Doe. And uh, but again, she's now known as Evelyn Cologne. Uh, she she does have family that, that's still around. Certainly, they're uh, happy for the efforts of the Pennsylvania State Police in that case. That's an amazing story, and it's such a you know it, just from the fact that it you were successful, um, but it really shows how these techniques have have developed and how they they, they really work. That's that's great. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Throughout your career, and I, I know you've you've talked about probably most of these already, uh, but I'm curious what you think are the most important advancements in forensic investigations. Uh, most most important would be, uh, you know, certainly DNA. Uh, yeah. D- DNA came about uh, with, with criminal investigations uh, in, in the United States in the late 1980s. Uh, so again, I, I was ju- I was just becoming a police officer, you know. You know, DNA uh, when when it was first uh, becoming widely used, uh, it, it, different techniques were being used back then. Different analysis. Uh, I don't think anybody was dreaming about where. I mean, certainly scientists probably were, but law enforcement detectives we we never were dreaming where it would ultimately lead to today with genealogy and everything else the way we're doing this but i would say certainly say dna uh the the other thing would be uh technological uh advancements uh cell phones young detectives right now they they crush it uh with investigations simply by doing uh cell tower analysis cell phone uh, analysis uh social media analysis analyze computers certainly those advancements in uh in criminal investigation uh were you know got us to where we were at today uh, i mean when i was first a detective we, we were we we had a bought we bought our own word processor because the only thing available at that time was a typewriter uh you know we were doing criminal investigations without cell phones oh, wow. yeah you know and it's not that you know i it doesn't seem like that long ago 
And no, it doesn't. Know, but, uh, but you think of where it's brought us today, where we can track people's whereabouts. And I mean, uh, almost every single person in our society has a cell phone. And what, what better diary of your life is there than your cell phone? It's all your, all your most personal uh, communications with somebody in text messages or uh, you're taking photos of everything. It's, uh, it, it's downloading where you're at almost constantly. Uh, I mean, you, you talk about a wide open book. I mean, compared to cases, you know, back in the 70s or 60s where the only communication was if you stopped at a payphone and, and dropped a, a coin in to call somebody. I mean, it's a, we, yeah. we, we've, it, that has opened the door on investigations. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Now, throughout the, this podcast, I've spoken to a few forensic pathologists and we've talked about the portrayal of forensic methods in movies and, and TV. And some of the things that you've talked about, some of the techniques, I know some TV shows, especially, uh, you know, might, might sort of pretend to use those techniques. But I'm curious what you think about this portrayal in, uh, on, in, in TV and in, in movies. Do you think it's helpful to the field or kind of a detriment? Uh, probably, probably both more, I would say more detrimental in truly seeking justice. Uh, it it is, it's had it. And I, what I mean by that is it has had such an influence on juries. Uh, juries really think that that is the way it is or the way it should be. So, so they discount a lot of other, a lot of other evidence, uh, you know, I've worked with prosecutors and, and I'm a firm believer as well. I love circumstantial evidence because circumstances are hard to get, get around. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a, it's a duck. And, uh, a lot of times circumstances, but, but juries we find will discount circumstances. They want to hear, did you find their fingerprint? Did you find their DNA? Did you find, well, no, but we found, we can tell you that, circumstantially, you know, all these other things line up against this person and, but it totally gets discounted. So I I think it's been detrimental in in that respect. Uh, I mean, certainly it's been great for the field. uh, As we talked about earlier, uh, you know, when I was first pursuing education and uh, in in this, there weren't a lot of places to go. Uh, But now because of all this portrayal, I mean, certainly there's such a huge, huge interest in forensics and forensic science and uh you, you know f- females have dominated the the uh the, the forensic scene uh that, that i don't think if there was that portrayal on television and everything that they were introduced to it i i don't know if they would have pursued those careers and and you know certainly that's you know it's tremendous for the uh you know for the science and for all the forward-thinking individuals that that want to uh, uh, keep 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 this going and keep finding new techniques and finding, but but again, television they solve it in an hour. Uh, it's certainly not like that. But but everything that they do show on television, you know, the fu- the funny thing about it is, it is born out of the true science. Uh, I mean, it it is you know they will show. Uh, oh, you know, uh, just track their cell phone. Well, yeah, we, we can do that. But what they can do on TV in a minute where they just pull it up on a computer, it might take us days or weeks 
until we go to a judge and get a court order and send it to a phone company who is inundated with a phone request from uh, every other law enforcement officer across the country working a similar case. And now they don't get us the data for three weeks. And the data is so massive that we need investigators to painstakingly go through it for weeks and months. Uh, I mean, so on TV, you know, minutes uh, in reality, months and, uh, you know, try to explain that to some victims families when when they're influenced by TV as to why your your investigations moving so slowly. So I would say probably more detrimental than good. OK, OK, that that makes a lot of sense. I can understand that. Uh, you, you know, Tom, this has been a, a great conversation. I've, I've enjoyed learning more about you and uh, the work that you're doing and the forensic genetic genealogy. That seems like a, a fascinating field that uh, could really improve cold case and, and homicide investigations in the future. So, uh, Tom McAndrew, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with forensic pathologist Dr. Douglas Posey as we talk about his book, which is essentially his autobiography, From Mississippi to the Morgue. Here's a quick listen. Did you always intend to go into pathology, even even from the beginning? <laughs> yes, I did. But here's what I, here's what I did, uh, Dennis. I thought it would be unfair to the rest of the disciplines of medicine. Okay, so I never mentioned pathology to anyone during four years of medical school. A gastroenterologist by the name of Dr. Karras came to my apartment when he found out that I was applying, looking for places to train in medical school. I mean, in, in pathology. And he pleaded with me, Dennis, as God is my witness, I have too many good stories to make up in me. He pleaded with me not to go into pathology. I said, Dr. Karras, this is my goal. I have to, he said, you have, you have excellent bedside manners. It's going to be a waste for you to go into pathology. I said, oh, Dr. Karras, I don't think it will be a waste. And my goal, I came to medical school with a goal to study pathology, I gave every discipline the chance to change my mind. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Douglas Posey in episode 69. All right, great big thanks to Tom McAndrew. Now, like I said at the beginning, he's a super interesting guy and the things that he's doing with investigative genetic genealogy, it's just amazing. I mean, this technology has advanced very quickly in a short period of time. So it, it'll be interesting to see how much farther it, it advances in the near future. And the fact that they're able to use things like this in order to solve cold cases that are several decades old. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive, too. Of course, Tom also mentioned the lack of funding for a, a lot of these uh, programs and technologies, which... I mean, as, as we've talked about in other episodes of the show, is the same in other areas of forensics and certainly forensic pathology in some cases, too. So in order to continue these advances in these kinds of fields, that's really something that's going to need to be addressed in the not too distant future. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Hey, don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. 
Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.